Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, guest host Wuhutu talks to professor of journalism at Columbia University, Michael Shudson, about his new book, The News Media, What Everyone Needs to Know. The conversation focuses on the history of the news as well as how the public makes sense of news today. Of particular interest is the legacy of the Watergate scandal on journalism and the East Coast position historically as a center for news production. Professor Schatzen, welcome to the office hours at the Society Pages, and thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview on your book. Uh, great, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. So I think we'll just dive into the first question. Um, earlier on in the book, you mentioned that you know today we have more data about how journalism and the media field works that we never had before. So the question then becomes, why then do most of Americans feel like they know very little about journalism today? Uh, I, I think uh, you know, Americans both feel that they know quite a lot, maybe too much, uh, and and also that they know very little. It's sort of slightly schizophrenic, um, and I don't know what your experience is um, in classes, but mine is that students are quite confused about um, the news media and will quote editorials from the editorial page to me to show, see, uh, the, the media are biased. Yes. Um, and don't really, un- I mean, there's nothing more basic about journalism than a distinction between news and editorial, but a lot of students just don't uh, didn't learn that somewhere uh, yeah. before they got to college. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, my students were surprised that we still have physical newspapers, so they look at me like I'm really old for reading an actual physical newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Not an online publication, but anyway. <laughs> so uh, as I was reading your book, it struck me that, you know, in the early days of the newspapers in colonial America, Amsterdam seems to play a really big role. I mean, Amsterdam is the place where we first have, we have the first English and French newspapers. And I was wondering if, for a non-Westerner, right, for a reader that is not from uh, the global north, how should they understand the place of Amsterdam and the way you talk about it in your book vis-a-vis them publishing the first English and French newspapers? language newspapers um, uh, appeared in Amsterdam, not in London. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't last long, but it, it, that is the, the beginnings. Uh, that is indicative of um, several important things about um, early newspapers. Uh, first, um, the early newspapers, we're talking about the early 1600s, but mm-hmm. throughout the 17th century. Um, and really throughout most of the 18th century, too. Newspapers published foreign news. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, the and although Amsterdam and London and um, many European capitals were the center of um, newspaper publication um, in those countries, that these that was only because they were also the centers of commerce. I mean, the United States, Washington D.C. was not a center of the newspaper world, and the, and lo, local or uh, that is um, national uh, politics rather than foreign affairs mm-hmm. was not the center point either, um, uh, either in the North America or in in Europe. Um, the, 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 the newspapers and the news organizations, as they developed, were uh, saw them themselves as having a largely elite leadership, uh, and the elite meant business people who had international relations and cared about shipping and what was exports and imports. Um, those sorts of things were of uh, considerable importance and. Um, Enough so that one historian says that the, the real um, technological um, revolution, what what sparked uh, the the growth of communications in the early modern period, was not really as much the printing press as it was the inter- international postal system. Um, that getting commercial materials and letters back and forth across all of Europe uh, was was the, an important impetus to the growth of news media ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so just building off of that, uh, would that be, you know, would those reasons be uh, help explain how we end up having such a large concentration of newspapers in the East Coast, right? Because you mentioned this uh, Boston, Philadelphia in your book and how those places seem to have a richer culture of newspaper and newspaper reading almost. Uh, yes, and, and there, I mean, think about it this way. If, if most of your news uh, in those early colonial American newspapers is news about Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, where does that, where do you get that news? Well, you, you get it as uh, ships come into the harbors, and where are the harbors? Well, it's Boston, New York, Philadelphia, uh, to some extent Baltimore. This is where um, the, the, the ships landed. Yeah. And uh, the American print, you know, printers um, and, and newspapers then weren't much more than print shops, um, uh, got the newspapers from from the ships and um, started setting them in type in their own newspapers. So I'd say it's partly that they were centers of commerce, but it was quite specifically because they had the first access to European news. Yeah, uh, so the next question touches on that, right, but also builds off your your book on the sociology of news it's it's you, there seems to be this theme of american news in this particular time and space essentially being a reproduction or reprinting of european news and the question for me then is would this then be would it be correct to view 
news in colonial America at this particular time as a harbinger of current news practices of lifting stories from wire agencies, right? Because there seems to be kind of the same thing that's happening where news comes from Europe, it's printed here, and it's, you know, given to the people to read. And this seems as though, this seems largely similar with what happens with wire organizations and wire agencies today. Uh, there, there is a similarity in, in that uh, for most American news outlets, the the Associated Press and sometimes Reuters now, um, but the Associated Press in particular um, is where they get their news. Yeah. Um, the, the, the difference, though, is that um, in colonial days, um, there was there was no money changing hands. The, um, the, the colonial newspapers were simply taking, um, stealing, if you will, <laughs> uh, the, the news from the European press. Uh, whereas the, um, the main surviving um, wire service in the U.S., the Associated Press, is owned by uh, the participating news organizations. They, yeah. um, they contribute uh, their news stories to the AP, uh, and in exchange for that, they are uh, able to take... Um, stories from other news organizations that are also uh, Associated Press members. So um, the, the AP is, is really quite an unusual organization in that it's it's a nonprofit, it's a cooperative uh, association, and um, owned, as it were, by its um, member news organizations. Yeah. Okay. Um, just a maybe three more questions. And uh, and this is something that has struck me about the American media field uh, specifically is it appears that radio's medium had little effect on newspaper readership in the, in the U.S. or has had little effect on newspaper re- readership in the U.S. And I'm wondering why this is so. Because in countries such as Kenya, where I work on specifically, I mean, 70% of Kenyans get their daily news from newspapers compared to 12% from news um, of newspaper readers, right? So there's this overrepresentation of folks that get news from the radio. And I'm wondering why it seems to be almost the opposite or not that similar in the U.S. And I'm wondering if you had an explanation for why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A financial paper. Um, 
uh, emotionally uh, or sentimentally connected. When when radio came in, uh, it it added a new dimension in uh, certainly in the, in the importance of the, the intimacy of the voice. But um, but then you lost things too. It was faster, yes, but it didn't have pictures. Your newspaper had photos and and illustrations. Um, it it didn't have that same uh, sense of tradition and connection to family. Uh, it, it, you know, there, there, there are just a lot of differences. And radio, while uh, interesting to people, and uh, particularly as an entertainment medium, news was was very staccato and uh, headline-ish. Um, when you could get much more in commentary and editorial and so on in your newspaper, uh, that was not replaced, and, and radio didn't really compete in that area. Okay. Um, so the second to last question is, I think a question I, I've had different versions of over the past two decades, and it's 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 the legacy of Watergate, right? Because as we have a new political dispensation in the U.S the media field has had to almost renegotiate its place within the psyche of most Americans. And the question then becomes, you know, considering the drip-drip nature of the various issues with the current administration, what would you say has been the legacy of Watergate, right, in today's media field's relationship with the state specifically? Um. Watergate is is a unique one. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is the you know the for Americans and to some extent people elsewhere around the world, it's it's the mother of all modern uh, scandals and and the one that um, gave us the the, the gate Sussex uh, to name um, more recent scandals in, in the U.S. People yeah have been talking about um, Russia Gate yeah um, and uh, th- 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 that linguistic um, uh, idiosyncrasy is is one of the things that um, Watergate has left as its legacy but i I think um that's related to but but there's a larger um, legacy which is to place skepticism and critical inquiry at the heart of the definition of what the press should be about. Um, There are elements of that earlier, but they're not nearly as strong as they've been since Watergate. I I sometimes say that the the term muckraking is is the most misleading term in all of the history of American journalism uh, because it gives us the impression that uh, news organizations have been uh, doing brave and bold and deep digging inquiries for a long time, back to the days of Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, the, the muckrakers in Teddy Roosevelt's day uh, were um, a handful of uh, reporters working for a handful of uh, middle class monthly magazines, and, and the, their work, though, was very impressive, and it irritated President Roosevelt, um, did not really sink in as part of the daily newspaper's operation. And that, that really 
and newspapers began to devote special resources and special assignment teams and um, only in the late 1960s. And then uh, Watergate, which was an inquiry undertaken not by a special assignment team, not by people known as investigative reporters, but by two local reporters, Bernstein and Woodward, mm-hmm. uh, they, um, they provided a kind of capstone to the uh, the, the, this new type of more aggressive inquiry that had started in half, really just half a dozen years or so uh, before they started their their Watergate reporting. Yeah. So it was something of a surprise as it uh, developed, but it's become by far the most important and most iconic symbol of what the press thinks it's supposed to do, uh, raise questions. Uh, and speak truth to power. Yeah, and I, also I think, you know, in my understanding and watching most Americans interact with newspapers and the news, it's almost as though audience members expect the media to operate in that way, right? They expect the media to go, this is a big thing, and then very quickly shows the crime that's that's been perpetrated and there often isn't a conversation about how long it took right for uh, for the Washington Post to get the aha moment so this this is it and I think that's something that maybe most people have some people at least have forgotten about that it took a long time before the aha moment was finally here Yeah. And uh, the, the press, particularly the Washington Post, uh, uh, was persistent and uh, kept after the story. But uh, had it been only the press, uh, it, the president never would have resigned. It, it was that the press uh, provoked um, uh, other parts of the government, in particular the, the uh, federal judiciary and then the Senate with its inquiries, uh, the Senate Watergate Committee. Uh, there, there were a lot of actors uh, involved in this, and it, it was not simply the press versus um, the government. That's important to remember, too. Yeah. Okay, so on to the last question, and this this is a question that has fascinated me for a long time, and it's why is everyone always so eager to predict the end of newspapers, right? There's always this oh, this will change everything and newspapers will end. And it feels as though this has been going on <laughs> for a long time. Uh, it, it, this is true. You, you can certainly find um, commentary, at least back to the 1950s, about um, you know, the, the newspaper is dying. And uh, there, there's a, a nice book called Death in the Afternoon, which is about the the decline in the number of afternoon newspapers. And they did, in fact, decline much more quickly um, than the morning papers. Um, uh, and they, they were declining in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, by the 80s, 90s, uh, people thought, uh, and you, this is obviously all before the internet, mm-hmm. that the, the newspaper was on its way out. Um, 
in um, the country's newsrooms has plummeted um, since the internet, um, and it's it's dropped in the last 15 years or so by about 50 percent, um, and that's affected some news organizations more than others. Um, and the, uh, there's been a, a recent flurry because the um, since uh, Trump has become president, um, the, the New York Times has added uh, some 25,000 print, of all things, print subscribers, mm-hmm. and uh, about 300,000 digital subscribers. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, uh, president Trump has been a, a boon not only to Fox and CNN, but to uh, now the, the New York Times as well. But the but the trend um, is, in terms of employment and profitability is distinctly downward, and um, you know, uh, uh, and the people in the news business are indeed, and I, I would have to say, I think rightly so. Um, anxious about the financial future of uh, print, print journalism, and journalism more broadly. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's. It's been frustrating, but I know. Thank you so much for the that. That was the last question. Thank you so much for taking time for the interview. My pleasure. This week's episode of Offsour is featuring Michael Schutz and was produced by me. Matthew Aguilar Shampoo is part of the Society pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more content about the sociology of media at societypages.org.